I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. Very excited to dive in with my guests today, so let's go ahead and hear from them now. My name is Larry Karaszewski, and my craft is screenwriting. My name is Scott Alexander, my craft is screenwriting, and my hobby is playing jazz piano. Scott and Larry are the award-winning screenwriters and producers behind films like Ed Wood, The People vs. Larry Flint, and Man on the Moon. On the small screen, they were also behind one of the best shows I think I've seen in ages, 2016's The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Their new movie, Dolomite Is My Name, tells the story of entrepreneur Rudy Ray Moore, an inspirational figure of the exploitation film movement who reminds us not only that it is never too late to realize your dreams, but more importantly, that no one else is going to realize them for you. But as you can see by their credentials, Scott and Larry trade in biopics, real-life stories about real-life people. And that's a tricky trade. How do you tell the story of a life? What players do you eliminate or consolidate? What timeline do you cover? Do you go from the cradle to the grave? Do you choose a potent slice of life? And what really gives you the right in the first place? Where does the writer ultimately find that sweet spot between representation and reality? So let's get into it. I ain't lying, man. People love me. Hey, if you play this song, I guarantee you motherfuckers will start hopping and squirming. When I used to play this record live, motherfuckers would actually faint. They would faint on the floor, they'd have to call an ambulance to pick all these motherfuckers up, okay? Every time I played this, in fact, they start calling the hospital in advance and tell them, Rudy gonna be singing tonight, make sure you're ready, because we finna be carrying motherfuckers out the club. I ain't lying, people love me. That's the first thing we hear in the film. And I love it because, to me, it kind of sets up an overriding theme, which is... Rudy Ray Moore, this guy had an unwavering confidence in himself. He had this sort of just bold-faced determination, and I think it was a key ingredient to, to his success. We're going to get into the inception of the project and the origins and stuff in a bit, but before we dial it all the way back, I wanted to talk about that idea, because I actually think it's prevalent in a lot of your work. Is that something that you wanted to get into the film, bake it in from the beginning, that kind of a thematic idea of confidence? I don't know if it was uh, it was consciously we were going to bake it into the very first scene. You know, it's so baked into all of our characters because all of our characters in general are people who are swimming in the wrong direction, who are constantly being told no. And so without this, you know, insane belief in themselves, they wouldn't get anywhere, whether it's Ed Wood or Larry Flint. It, get, it gets it's the key to the conflict in our movies. I mean, Chris, you are onto something that I think Rudy is the first one of our characters who just likes to talk about himself. Yeah. And is a braggart. Mm-hmm. But what, what also is interesting, though, is that second line, people loved me. In a weird sense, it was Rudy recognizing that there was an audience for what he did. Mm-hmm. He feels like he's got something to offer the world that the world actually wants. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the origins. Uh, the very beginnings of this project, you've talked about it uh, yeah. plenty, I'm sure, by now. But just how did you get hooked up with Eddie Murphy on this? What is the earliest start of the, the Dolomite movie here? The love of Rudy goes back to college days in the 80s. Our Buddy Dan Waters, who we were all living together, brought home a VHS of The Best of Sex and Violence, <laughs> starring John Carradine as the wraparound host. Yeah, that is a trailer, exploitation trailer compilation. Yeah, two, two hours of 
driving trailers. And it was back-to-back uh, Dolomite Human Tornado, Disco Godfather, which are completely out of their minds. Uh, they're highly recommended to your listeners. You should go, wa- especially watch Human Tornado trailer. They're the greatest trailers of all time. Human Tornado <laughs> probably, I would say, is the greatest trailer of all time. Yeah, so uh, we, we fell in love with Rudy off, off, off this trailers. But the project, I mean, the answer your, right to your question, the project began about 16 years ago. We got a phone call saying that Eddie Murphy wanted to meet us. And so we were like, oh, Eddie Murphy, that's fantastic. You know, we never met Eddie. And um, so we went out to his office, and we walked in, and Eddie started doing lines from Ed Wood, actually <laughs> performing as the characters, performing as Bella Lugosi, performing as Tor Johnson. He did a great Tor Johnson. Wow. Do my toes. And then, um, uh, and then he looked at us and said, do you guys know who Rudy Ray Moore is? And we both started laughing because it was like, yes, we, we were like, oh, fuck yes, we know who Rudy Ray Moore is. And um, uh, we just started talking about Rudy with Eddie and, and we instantly got it that he wanted to do an Ed Wood style movie. We, we made it a point in the past never to really to write specifically for one actor because that way your movie can get trapped if you do that. Yeah. But for us, it was like the idea of like Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore, even if we had to make it, we were going to see this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, and a couple of days later, uh, he Eddie got us in the room with the real Rudy Ray Moore. And, and Rudy was quite excited. Uh, you know, Rudy was always looking for respect and attention. And this this was Hollywood knocking. Like, finally, they're going to make a big movie about me. And, uh, and he told us a lot of his war stories. And, and, and as we hung out with him, you know, he, he, he showed up in the outfit and he's got the hat and the whole routine. But after, after a bit, the routine dropped and then he sort of just became the real guy. And, and that's when we first got a sense of this duality with Rudy and that he, he was not that character we knew from the movies. He, he was a real guy and he was old and he'd been on some rough road. And, you know, when you're a comic on the road for 40, 50 years, that is just a brutal life. We got to see that these were two people, which ended up becoming the theme of the movie. Yeah, yeah. the title of the movie, Dolomite is My Name, yeah. is specifically about, it's about someone creating a creation that becomes this person. Some, some people think that, that we screwed up because the catchphrase in the movies is, Dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. It, mm-hmm. It's like, no, we didn't get it wrong. <laughs> we were just trying to make a thematic point. Yes. He wanted, he wanted his legacy to be honored. He sort of felt like, he had accomplished some really important shit back in the day. And now he had kind of been kicked aside and now he was old. And now people had kind of forgotten him a bit. And I think we were trying to honor that idea that he just said, God damn, no one is going to help me. No one's going to give me a handout. No one's going to give me a job. No one's going to give me anything. So I just have to make it happen for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we really wanted to honor that spirit. Yeah. And also, I think uh, the way you, what what Scott had said earlier about the the sense of there was there was a quiet man in there as well. Mm-hmm. That uh, we always knew we were going to write a really outrageous, funny version of the story, but uh, it really made us see that wait a second, it also can be poignant. Yeah, that, you know, when 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 he would just sit down and kind of be eating his, he ordered a bunch of calzone that day. A lot of calzone. <laughs> so oh, really? He was just quietly eating his calzone, and there was kind of there was a sadness there mm. that uh, that I think that that stuck with us. And then whatever, we went out to try to sell the project and we couldn't sell it. And so everyone went their separate way. Yeah. And we felt terrible and we kind of let Rudy down and, and Rudy wound up passing away in, I think, 2008. And we thought that the, it, the time had passed by for us. We, it was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did the People versus O.J. Simpson 
which was a phenomenal success. And we've been in this industry long enough to know that when you have that kind of a, a, a hit, that sometimes you can go back into an office and pitch them that crazy idea. And, and maybe the studio executives won't think you're that crazy for that one month. You know, you only got a, <laughs> right. a very, very short time period to do it in. Uh, and so through John Davis and John Fox, the producers, we got word back to Eddie. And because Eddie hadn't made movies in a while, yeah. you know, he hadn't, he hadn't said fuck in 20 years in a movie. So we didn't know where his head was. We thought he was semi-retired. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's crazy. He, I think life was the last movie. Yeah. Where he cursed uh, that's 99. Wow. And, you know, he makes that word poetry. I mean, strange enough, we, when we actually got down to write the movie, we were writing the movie as a tribute to Rudy Ray Moore. We were also writing the movie as a tribute to Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. For us, we wanted to write the greatest Eddie Murphy movie of all time that combined all of his talents, whether it was, you know, that X-rated comedy nightclub stuff he used to do, his way he's a great musician and singer, the way that he can do an amazing dramatic uh, role like he did in Dreamgirls, or even, you know, he can be poignant. I mean, so the, we wanted to make one movie that had all those pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we got word back to Eddie and Eddie just jumped in. He was like, yes, I'm a thousand percent in. But we went into Netflix like a week later because we had had this problem selling it like 16 years ago, Scott and I came in very prepared. Yeah, we we were nervous <laughs> because we we had crapped out trying to sell it where people just gave us blank looks like Rudy who? Rudy what? Mm-hmm. Rudy Ray who? Uh, and so we had this whole prep about, you know, how important Rudy was and what an innovator he was. And we got to meet with pitch to Ted Sarandos, who's the chief over there. And uh, and Ted just cut us off saying, guys, I, I started out in video stores in the 80s. Rudy kept us in business. <laughs> I know who he is. You, you can just cut, cut to the end. Yeah. So, so it's like Ted, Ted yeah. got it. Ted got it. I think, I think Eddie got up after that and did like the first like, couple lines from Signifying Monkey. And it was like, the deal's done. You know, no more pitch. It's over. Let's yeah, make, and, make this movie. Know, and then we still had a bunch of pitch left. And, you know, I was trying to say, so anyway... So at the at the end of the first act, and then the producer's like, "Shut up, <laughs> we're done. We sold Stop. it. Stop talking. Get you, out of the building. Can, all you can do is blow it now. Just shut Get up. Get your Scott. parking validation and leave." <laughs> we left the Netflix meeting. We made the deal, and then we didn't talk to Eddie until we had written a draft. Really. Right. I mean, but that being said, we you know we, we had but, but met- we were trying to but we were trying to kiss up to Eddie yeah. because. We, Larry and I made a secret pact that we didn't tell anybody, which was we only cared about Eddie because we knew if Eddie says yes, the movie happens. Mm -hmm. And so we were just trying to please Eddie Murphy. And so, you know, Larry and I are just complete trivia in the weeds freaks. And so we were just trying to pack in just so much esoterica from showbiz history back in the 60s and 70s. A lot of esoteric references that we knew eddie would get mm-hmm. yeah also here's something that a lot of people don't know about eddie murphy is he's a he is a movie nut i mean he really knows cinema and he'll sit down and talk about hodorowski or he'll talk about you know uh ponte Carvel's burn or uh, <laughs> you know he'll do all that you know he actually remember one time saying that brando made him watch burn <laughs> because brando thought oh, it was, right. he said brando brando thought it was better than the godfather uh, and so, you know, but uh, so he yeah, really, yeah, he got invited to Brando's house and Brando's like, all right, we're, tur- we're watching burn tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, he really, he gets cinema. And so we had that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of connection with him. Uh, but when we were writing it, we were just writing it once again, to please Eddie and to please ourselves. And it was an interesting thing for, for us to write this script because we were coming off of 
two rather big projects. We're coming off of the People versus O.J. Simpson, and we're coming off of uh, uh, a Patty Hearst script that uh, that unfortunately hasn't gotten made yet. Uh, but both those projects were thousands and thousands of pages of court transcripts, mm. and each person in each of those projects had written like five books. Then to go to Rudy, it was very limited. There were, I mean. Again, because like Rudy, Lady Reed's a great example. Very little is known about. What Lady do we Reed. know about Lady Reed? We knew she had a son. We knew her first name was really Nancy. We knew she had one sung backup in New Orleans. That's it. Yeah, that is all we know about Lady Reed before she meets Rudy. I mean, after mm. after she met Rudy, she does talk. There are interviews and things like that of her talking about her days with Rudy. I'll give a shout out to our main research guy, Mark Jason Murray, who lives up in Northern California and has devoted the last twenty or so years to detailing every moment of Rudy's life and interviewing everybody in Rudy's life. And he spent a lot of time with Rudy. And so he had a lot of great first person interviews that he gave us access to. And, uh, and he gave us access to his research. So in terms of, you know, how did we learn about Rudy back in Arkansas and the details of that? We got that from Mark. Let me ask you about like structure. Sure. Like when you when you start attacking that, like how do you attack the passage of time here? Because you know well, that's actually a great question for this particular project. Because I think when we went and but, pitched it, but initially, we don't like the passage of time. Yeah, passage of time is negative because because we think that's kind of what makes uh, regular bio biopics kind of suck. But for the most part, we like to just really concentrate on a short amount of time. We always ask the question: Why is this person being remembered? And that's usually the, if the answer is usually the third act of the movie. Mm -hmm. But in this case, strangely enough, when we initially proposed a project, we were going to show Rudy making all of his movies. But the more research we did, we found that the real good stories were all about the making of Dolomite. Though, I mean, the, the, the predicament was, you know, always know your ending. Right. And uh, I was like, all right, why did we sit through this for two hours? Okay, that's why. And so for... For Rudy, uh, his legacy culturally, socially, would be that uh, most of the early rappers say it started with Rudy and, you know, Easy e and Snoop Dogg and, and, and the guys from that generation all said, we got it from Rudy. He should get the credit. And so in our minds, we wanted we to, had to figure get to out, them. We, we had to, to get, get to the 80s to, somehow. Yeah, we had to get mm -hmm. to the early 80s to get to early rap. As we started doing our research, we, we started falling in love with the early records and with the Chitlin circuit. And so the idea that Rudy recorded the album literally in his living room and then literally borrowed $250 from his auntie who had fallen off a bus and gotten a settlement. Right. And, and then pressed the records and then had his friends come over and assemble them and glue the stickers on and stamp the little devil on it. It was so charming. And then he's, he's selling them out of his car trunk. How fun is that? And now he's going to go back on the road and he's going to drive across the South through the Chitlin circuit, and he's and he's going to carry that merch table, and he's going to sell them records after the shows, and then he's going to set up in the parking lot and sell them out of his car trunk because nothing ever stops Rudy from trying to make another five dollars. But Rudy actually sort of never went off the road. I mean, I saw him perform live in the nineties at a place called Club Lingerie on Sunset Boulevard, and it's funny later I think Eddie was at the same show, but it was it was very much. You know, uh, almost what you see in the movie where Rudy would perform and then he hung out at the merch table. You know, he had his own <laughs> merch table. I think Blowfly was on the bill that night as well. And, so he's, I, and he sold Dolomite back scratchers. Yeah. Um, wow. He, but we heard he actually would, he would roll in the town and he'd go to like uh, the, uh, you know, sort of the Goodwill place and he'd buy like all the ashtrays you could find, then put a Dolomite sticker on them. 
And then, so then he'd sell them as merch at this table later. It was Dolomite ashtrays. It was just garbage. <laughs> brilliant. And, and, and the world of the chilling circuit, which was, you know, clubs, you know, for black audiences, for black performers, uh, was a world that we had just not seen in movies and homemade party albums. We hadn't seen in movies. Mm-hmm. And so that stuff just started eating up our screenplay and it turned into the first half of our movie. And this is what made, um, this is what made this movie different was the, the racial element, the fact that, like, you know, that, that, that Rudy wasn't let in by the gatekeepers and had to sort of do it by himself. And he used to see those building blocks of becoming a, a you know, a, a record star, then a road star, then, a, then making, a, making his movies. Rudy and his friends, they're all black, and none of them are, are getting hired. And when they look at all the billboards on the Sunset Strip for all the big new movies coming out, nothing against James Coburn or Steve McQueen, but that's who's starring in the studio yeah. movies. We're making movies about the past, but we want to make sure they also are speaking to what's happening now. Yeah. And this is a way to actually make the movie about representation. Yeah. That whole, the whole front page scene, we're not going out of our way to actually say the front page is a terrible movie. We looked at what movies came out at that time period, and we were thinking, what would, what would be the film that would be if you saw people laughing and having a great time, and you land on the row of, of Rudy and his friends? And no matter what you think of the front page or Walt, Matthau and Lemon, <laughs> it's like, wait a second, this movie's not speaking to them. Yeah. This movie, almost even beyond that, this movie's pretending they don't exist. It's also interesting, too, because it, he has that epiphany in that moment. He's yeah. busting his ass on the circuit. He's traveling all around. This is how he's able to get out there. And he sees th- this flickering light. Yeah. If he just does that, it's got more reach. Yeah. It's almost like... The romance of filmmaking isn't part of the equation yeah, at it's all. It's total... the efficiency of what he's trying to do. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. Well, well, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> so you can save gas money by, yeah, by exactly. making a movie. Sure. Exactly. I, I mean, but yeah. th- that, that's us doing our screenplay craftsmanship where, you know, the front page is, is serving as a plot mechanic for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. When we were sort of trying to figure out the structure of the movie and we weren't going to, we weren't, we weren't going to make it the easy E, we had to figure out some way of, of connecting Rudy to the legacy of hip hop. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And when Snoop we came, came up with, well, Snoop, but we <laughs> came up with him running into that young kid at the movie theater. Oh, uh, yeah. Where yeah, you yeah. saw him literally passing his pimp cane down to a next generation. That sort of solved our problem. Where, you right. know, you'd walk out the theater. If you, hadn't, if you hadn't made the connection already, you could walk out there like, oh my gosh, that is that, oh my God, Rudy did, you know, did affect. Those 10-year-old kids who heard those dirty records. And that kid has his own flow with how he's Correct. doing his Correct. spoken word stuff, Absolutely. you know. So, yeah. so that, like, we, were very, we were very happy with that. And that, that, that allowed us to be, not, have to not have to go to the two-life crew. Well, the, speaking of the signifying <laughs> monkey, <laughs> yes. obviously, uh, you know, African-American folklore is, is in the bedrock of this story. Yes. Because yeah. Rudy Absolutely. Ray Moore and his lane, you know, is, is an extension of that, that legacy. Absolutely. Um, you know, filming at the Dunbar Hotel as he did, yeah. which was the ground zero for, for our like Central years. Avenue jazz scene. And just, yeah. it's very, it's, it's very fascinating. That's all a part of it. I'm just curious how that element took shape as you were writing this kind of connection to the past for I, I, I mean, it, it was, it, stuff was all wonderful because it, it made the movie richer. I mean, like you, you bring up the Dunbar and then, you know, whatever, we just started Googling Dunbar Hotel and, you know, reading how, you know, important it was sort of to the black art scene in LA in the 1920s and Ella stayed there and Duke Ellington stayed there and then these poets would stay there uh you know also you know this these are in the days of you know heavy segregation and so you know all the black artists had to stay there yeah uh and 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 so it, it just sort of gave a, a richness to 
to play up the Dunbar and actually tell the story of the Dunbar to the audience. Yeah, I mean, we kept on stumbling onto those things. The Dunbar Hotel, Dolphins of Hollywood Records. Mm-hmm. These were these were very important cultural places uh, for the African American community. And and the and the toast, the toast. Yeah, you know. So we re- we really wanted to sort of. E- explain you know what is a toast and how far back do they go Mm. and how it was just sort of this you know informal boastful rhyming uh storytelling yeah that went on i mean for hundreds of years and it was been passed down from generation generation and and then really monetized it yeah Mm. uh i mean it's funny some people come up to us and say oh well you know the uh, did Rudy, Rudy ever give like royalties to the hobos he got those stories <laughs> from? And it's like, uh, I feel like I think just, I asked you that a while back. They, 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 just, they don't really get it that those, those hobos didn't make up those stories. <laughs> right, right. You know, those stories, you know, they certainly put their own spin on it. And the way Rudy put his Why own spin on it. Why didn't Rico the hobo get yeah. royalties? <laughs> but Rico did not write Signifying Monkey. Another line that stood out to me as well, you know, I mentioned the first line, but when he says, how'd my life get so damn small? Yeah. Yes. I love that line because... There's something that edges up to self-pity, but it's not that. It's almost, again, that determination to, like, do something, the way he reads it anyway, the way Eddie, the way Eddie kind of intones it. It's, it's a tone of self-admonishment, you know? Like, in other words, there's something about him, as you've written him, he never bogs down. Yeah. You're screenwriters. And I imagine that's a quality you need to have as screenwriters. So are you, are you putting no, yourself actually, into Rudy? I actually believe that's what we put ourselves into every character we write, yeah. which is crazy. Like, you know, so many times people ask us about... All the biopics so, are autobiographical. Yeah, they are. And, and people say, well, why is that line in there? It's well, like, because my mother, my grandmother died that week when that happened mm-hmm. or something. Uh, but I actually think uh, before you even said that, I was going to answer that, uh, that we're now older dudes. That maybe if we had written this 16 years ago, that line wouldn't be in there. But I think oh, we that, know that's interesting. We know too many guys that we started out in this industry together who now unfortunately, you know, no longer are able to get movies made or the, the, or that dream of being a big time director didn't happen for them. And it, and it's painful and it hurts and it's not because they're not talented, it's not because they don't deserve it, it's just more that this some things happen. And so for Rudy to say how my life gets so damn small. Like, you know, I came out here to do something and I, and I've got all this determination and I know I have the talent. I know there's an audience for me, but I just been, I've been stuck, you know, definitely uh, it was, it was something we put in there on purpose. And then Eddie made that line just beautiful. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about the word fuck. Uh, what, do, what, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Because you know, it's 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 like rat a tat in the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how much of that is is in the script? How much is that letting oh, them just kind of go? We were trying to dole out the swearing, right? And we would actually look at pages and go, "Oh wait, there's there's seven here. Let's <laughs> let's try to knock it down to two or three. But once you get on the set, and it's Rudy and Snoop and Mike Epps and Craig, and they're everyone's having fun. This yeah. this was a fun movie to make. Yeah. Uh, then you get a little more swearing. Yeah. Sometimes a lot more swearing. It starts to flow. And then the motherfuckers, and then you, you watch the movie, and you go, there's four of them in the first 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when, Eddie, when Eddie swears, it just it frees him up. And, and, and then he, he, he's just so damn funny. And it's like, it's fine that he, you know, he had that run of, of family films, but Eddie Murphy is not being utilized in PG. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Eddie Murphy in R is where he can cut loose and be free. Yeah. Right. But Larry got indignant yesterday because uh, as a matter of pride, he went to some fuck website 
And the well, there actually website, is a Wikipedia page that says movies that movies that say the word fuck. And and, like, and, and we weren't at the top. No. And like, Larry the commitments was, beat us. And I was like, what the? Larry what? got very yeah. sad and sulky. <laughs> and I was trying to explain to him that this, this, the, the guy at the Wikipedia page needs to be uh, cr- corrected, or as you would say, admonished, because I don't <laughs> think he's including motherfucker. So I think he's excluding motherfucker and only including fuck, which if you're, if you're trying to rank Dolomite as my name, isn't really fair. Has anyone counted all of them? No. no. Chris, that's your job. I think I'm going to do that. Yeah. I think someone needs to do that. I mean, I've been saying like when we do like, uh, you know, panels and stuff like this, I, I have one set line, which is always, you know, it's the sweetest movie ever made that says motherfucker 300 times. <laughs> yeah. So I, I assume 300, I've been saying 300. So yeah, I'll, get you, I'll get you an word, accurate number. Yeah, he's put the word three, the number 300 out there. <laughs> I don't know if it's high or low. Well, you say it was a fun movie to make. I want to talk a little bit about the production. Uh, were you guys present much yeah, during yeah. production? I, I, you know, I mean, before we go any further, just like praise Craig Brewer. Yes. Yeah, um, definitely. Who is such a sweetheart, so talented. He brought such joy to the movie. He brought such musicality to the movie. He, he was obviously vital, but how, how did he surprise you as far as... His vision. Um, I mean, I mean, in terms of the the director's vision, um, he definitely had us bring more music into the screenplay, which was so fitting because you know Rudy was basically a frustrated vaudevillian. You know, we have that line early on. You know, vaudeville's dead. I don't need an eight and one. And you know, Rudy, you know, could could uh, do shake dance, and Rudy could sing. Rudy could tell jokes. Rudy could read your mind. <laughs> Whatever you need. <laughs> Uh, and and so Craig really had an appreciation for all of that. And, and Craig has grown up in Memphis and is really entrenched in sort of like the, the, the blues bars yeah. and the sort of, and, and, and the black music scene in Memphis. And, and he, and he knows that world and he just really wanted to bring sort of the, the, the grit of that world. We show our characters a great deal of affection. We love our characters but sometimes we can be a little smart assy about it. Uh, but what Craig doubled down on the affection in a sense, mm-hmm. like he really fell madly in love with these characters and gave them such uh, dignity and gave them such heart. Especially Lady Reed. Lady he Reed, for example. Yeah. Lady Reed. And so that, I mean, that, that all the Lady Reed stuff works so beautiful in the movie. And I really think that I give Craig, you know, so much credit for that because he, he really saw that, that, that character was a special character and, uh, you know, when he films those so quiet moments with Rudy and Lady Reed talking to each mm-hmm. other, it's just, it's so beautiful. And there are just certain things, there was, so, you know, like I said, he had so much love and affection for these characters that you kind of do too as an audience. And one of the other things that really surprised us about this movie, we, we always felt the movie would end in a, in a, in a, in a big little bit of a hooray, but I don't think we were expecting, uh, and I mean, even Craig wasn't really expecting that, that you were actually going to be as touched emotionally. Mm-hmm. As you are in that. I mean, and, I mean we, and, we made the end of our script what was yeah. very heartfelt. Yeah. Uh, but, but Craig, Craig nailed it. Yeah, Craig nailed it. Just that, that, that limo scene. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I could watch that limo scene mm-hmm. a thousand times. And it's ridiculous. It's a limo scene. You know what I mean? Actually, Craig yelled at us like the day before he had to shoot. He's like, wait, this is the third act climax of our movie. And you've got six people sitting in the back of a limo reading bad reviews. Like, what? what why, why aren't they racing to stop something? Or I, they, you know? On paper... It's a terrible scene. It's yeah, and it, and we and Larry and I should be shot for having <laughs> I think it's five the, pages with six people shoved inside one car. Yeah. yeah, I think that that scene has the highlight 
of the, the high point of the film, which I is think when so he too. says, "I'm proud of myself." Yeah, that's that's the peak right. of, of. And I'm proud of, of you guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's funny just, you guys should bring up your "I'm proud of myself." I remember that was one of the very last things that we had like a discussion about before we turned. It was like he says, "I'm proud of myself." I remember you and I like should he actually say it? I'm proud of myself, and we're like. Yeah, you should, you know, but yeah, that, that, that always gets me for some reason mm-hmm. that, that, that I'm really touched by the fact that, that, you know, he's like, no matter what happens. In fact, I, we actually started saying that all the time because we're going through a whole period now where we go to a lot of screenings. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we're like pulling up at a, at a sort of a premiere with the same people who are in the movie, <laughs> we just watch doing, you know, we're, we're in the back of the car. And so one of us always ends up saying to the other person, like, no matter what happens, <laughs> you all did a great job. <laughs> What what was it like being able to shoot everything here in town? I mean, that's uh, it's so nice. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's such a privilege to just sleep in your own bed and then wake up and we'll sh- we'll show up in the morning. Uh, we don't have to show up at six a.m. with Craig. Right, that's mm-hmm. his problem because he's directing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we can roll in at eight or nine. Uh, you know, stay for a few hours, get a free lunch. Uh, you know, and then go to work, right for the afternoon, and then usually drive back to the set you know and watch the last couple hours of shooting so it, it, it's lovely yeah you know looking back at our career we've really we've told these stories of eccentric people but we've also sort of told the story of like los angeles showbiz fringe for yeah. the past for the 20th century <laughs> you know and then i mean maybe uh, subconsciously think, you're trying to stick yeah, around here but like think about the last two projects we did the people versus oj and um is my name they really are about the city of Los Angeles, and they're, yeah. they're showing you different parts of the city. Ed Wood with the with the Brown Derby and Musso and Franks. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were lucky with OJ and lucky with uh, with Dolomite. You know that the studios gave us enough money to do it right. And uh, you know, uh, I mean, one of the great joys of Dolomite is my name's shooting was the fact that Quentin was shooting once upon a time in Hollywood at the exact same time. So that was ridiculous. You, you would literally drive down <laughs> Sunset Boulevard and there'd be two blocks of, uh, of 1969 Hollywood, drive another block, and oh my God, there's a block of, 19, of 1974 Los Angeles. <laughs> and so there, and we're also, because both movies are about show business, we would take, um, there'd be, I, I, we have a, marquees. A couple times, a couple times I, I, I drove into Quentin's, uh, Quentin's location thinking I was at our location. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> we did get into a, into a marquee battle with Quentin. And we had a bunch of movie theaters and, and marquees and posters that got cut out of our movie. But every time one of us would shoot a scene that took place outside of a theater, you know, he, he we would say, we see your freaking Krakatoa east of Java and we raise you, you know. We raise uh, you the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg or the girl from Petrokia, you know. And that's, so we got this, this thing back and forth that was really, really funny. That's so geeky. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of real estate between these two things. So I'm just curious, uh, how was... Uh, Wesley's performance of Dervell different than how you wrote him. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great actor story. And, and it's also interesting in that he did it uh, without really changing the script. Uh, so when we were casting, uh, when word got out that Eddie Murphy's going to be playing Rudy Ray Moore, the floodgates opened and the casting directors, it was all incoming phone calls that every, co- every comic in town wanted to be in this movie. Yeah. And it was just dealer's choice. We, we got... We got everybody we wanted. It was it was just amazing. But then it came to Derville. And in the movie, structurally, this is screenwriting. Uh, he is the straight man. Mm-hmm. He, people, you know, when we write characters, characters play them, are, are themselves and they also represent other ideas. And Derville represents the, uh, the, the people who have made it. He represents yeah. the establishment. He, is, he has worked for Paramount Pictures. He has an agent. He is legitimate. He is different than Rudy and his ragtag 
pals sitting around a, a coffee shop saying, why can't we break in? Right. Mm-hmm. And the real Duravel uh, was that. I mean, he really looked at like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm somehow directing Dolomite. This is a this is a black X on my career, and and I'm <laughs> yeah. I, he I don't regretted really every here, minute of it, and he drank on the set, and he really. But but what Scott's saying is absolutely correct. He was the straight man. He was in. He was in Rosemary's Baby. He was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And, and, was, and certainly, we had written all the scenes, which is you know, Eddie Eddie is Rudy does a bunch of bad karate chops, you know, then Angle on Derville, you know, grimacing and, grimacing and then reaching for his vodka, right. you know, and, and there was a lot of that. And so the idea was, oh my God, what if we what if we cast Wesley Snipes? Because Wesley is a real actor. Wesley has gravitas. Yeah, even, Wesley is. Yeah. He he has a heaviness in the good sense that he will represent something different than you know than the funny guys who are running around the rest of this movie. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, actually, even before we came up with the name Wesley, the idea was the other parts would be cast with funny guys, and Durvel would be cast with you know I, I don't want to say real actor, but a, but an actor who was, who was more from the straight world. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Wesley seemed the perfect version of that. Yeah, and so what? Again, now now we're just making up silliness. We're filling in filling in the dots here. Our fantasy version of what happened is that Wesley was driving to the set on his first day and looking at the pages and going, "Okay, all right, so it's going to be me with 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 Eddie and and Mike and Craig and they're all going to be funny, and then I'm just going to be somber." It's like Fuck this. <laughs> Why can't I be funny? Wait, everyone in this movie gets to be funny except for me? <laughs> and then he showed up at that strip club on his first day, and we and all our eyes popped out like, whoa, this is an interpretation going on here. Yeah. We weren't expecting this, but then we kind of looked at Craig and he said, I think it's working. Yeah. Like, Why don't we just roll with this? And the funny thing is, is how closely he actually stayed to the original lines but the fact that he was like doing this crazy thing outside of the lines that mm-hmm. just made it all work on another level. Oh, he did come up with one of the great lines. This, this is we, we will not take credit for this. He did come up with the cinematical reality. Oh, he did. Yeah. yeah. That, oh man, that's, that's awesome. that one's got a life the, right now. The too. whole other scene, the rest of that scene though, was actually stolen from. You're asking how do we put ourselves in these things? Uh, we directed a movie called Screwed that Dave mm-hmm. Chappelle is in. This is this and, is back in the late '90s. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, Chappelle was always someone very fascinated with the movie making process. We were quite surprised that Dave hasn't actually directed a movie because he was really. He was really like... He, he was asking questions about lenses and, yeah. mm-hmm. and lights. And we remember we were on the set one day and he got into this thing with, with, uh, with our DP, who was a very straight guy. And it was like, it was, he, had the, the, he had the light, Dave Chappelle and Norm MacDonald in the same shot. And he was complaining about how hard it was. And Dave was like, well, what makes this so difficult? And he's like, well, you know, uh, black people <laughs> absorb light, white people reflect light. And Dave was just like, what the hell? <laughs> But then for the next like week or so, he'd we'd walk around and say like I absorb light, and so like, always... I absorb, you reflect. I absorb, you reflect. And so we would just laugh so hard about it. And then whatever, twenty years later, we're writing the script and we're like, we can put that Chappelle thing in. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Ed Wood, I just wanted to touch on because twenty fifth anniversary yeah. this yes. year is fascinating. That these two movies, you know, there, there's similarities. Eddie's brought it up, you know, as as an inspiration. You said he was t- quoting it when you met him. Uh, what I want to know is how has that work like settled or deepened in your view, uh, in the rear view now looking back on it. And also I'm curious what those two characters, Ed Wood and Rudy Ray Moore might share. 
That's funny. We, then maybe uh, we should have had uh, Rudy Ray Moore go and have a drink at the uh, Musos and uh, <laughs> run into John Cassavetti. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you sold your own? You sold your house to make your movie? I did that too. <laughs> Shoot that scene in black and white too. <laughs> when Ed Wood came out, we were so proud of it. And uh, whatever, I'd probably have to go back from Dolomite all the way back to Ed Wood to remember another movie where it was such joy on the set every day. It was just a, really a sweet experience. And, you know, the movie came out and we were all so proud of it. The reviews were amazing and then nobody went. I mean, when Larry and I wrote Ed Wood, we don't think anyone had ever written a movie about somebody who was from the margins that no one in the world had ever heard of. And we had this idea, which is why can't you celebrate somebody who, who wanted that American dream, even though he was in the shadows? his whole existence and he died impoverished over the years people who love movies discovered the film because the, the movie has a big heart and the movie is is such a celebration of filmmaking and trying to express yourself and trying to make art and so many people in the business we've talked to over the years who have said that's my favorite movie about movies because i feel like i've lived it and and anyone in the film business has started out in the trenches well, except for Eddie. Eddie, <laughs> Eddie started at the top and never left. Yeah. But the, every, everyone else, the rest of us started down in the gutter somewhere. And so I, I think that element of it just really touches people. It's nice that it sort of crept its way up and into respect and being in some kind of pantheon. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think the two guys share? They share a, a never say die. Uh, also, they share that they actually were making movies they wanted to make. Uh, the difference between the two is that Rudy... Rudy was recognizing a need in an, in an audience. Uh, you know, when uh, my favorite exchange in the movie is when the guy says, you're not supposed to make a movie uh, for the five square blocks of people that you know. Mm -hmm. And Rudy says, hey, those same five blocks are in every city in America. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that, that, that's sort of the difference between him and Ed Wood. And you know what's really funny? They end on a similar note with the sort of like a premiere of their, their big movie. That last sequence in Dolomite Is My Name actually happened mm -hmm. on the uh the chicago premiere of uh of dolomite uh it was at the woods theater mm -hmm. uh and when rudy showed up the place was jam-packed and the and the guy had actually added a 2 a.m show and people were lined up you know and it was like it was like eight o'clock or something people were lined around the block and rudy was like people have to wait out there till 2 a.m well, fuck that. I'm going to go out and entertain him. So he literally set up a little box and w walked up and down the roads and he just entertained people for hours and hours and hours. And we heard that story. It's like, that was a nutshell was who Rudy Remore is. He had this connection to the people and he really just, he loved the hearing laughter and he wanted to hear pe people react to what he was doing and saying. And so uh, we, th that seemed like just a, a great way to end the movie. Here's a, here's a little Chris Tapley exclusive uh, uh -oh. for you film nerds. The ending Ed Wood takes place at the Pantages, but we did not shoot inside the Pantages. We shot at the Orpheum. So, uh, Dolomite and Ed Wood both end in the same theater. How is that an exclusive? You haven't told anybody that? No. No. That's amazing. Well, we're going to wrap it up here with just uh, some quick rapid fire things. Oh, boy. So okay. Quick, quick answers. Go. If someone were writing a biopic about you, how would you want them to approach it? Actually, I don't know how you answer that one quickly, but uh, see if you can. I'd be a little skinnier. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> a little Same. skinnier. Can I be taller? 
<laughs> awesome. Perfect. How do we're, you... we're very superficial. We no, no, really... it's that that's where my head would go. I always yeah. wondered, uh, you know, because because there's the, the uh, this sounds very egotistical to say this, but I'm keep on expecting like one day to open up that like when the blacklist gets announced and see that number six <laughs> is some fucker wrote a movie where we're like we're we're, well, we're actually we, we, we used to do we used to do shtick about this. Yeah. We used to joke uh, about in our biopic. Because because when you write biopics, yes, you do have to you have to combine you have to combine, combine stuff. Yeah. Because you're 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 taking you're taking a bunch of years and you got two hours to tell the movie. And you yeah. set up a character, you gotta use a character. And then yeah. and, and as some of you may remember, our first uh, our first film was Problem Child with John Ritter. So yeah. we used to always talk about how I always drive convertibles. And and so <laughs> the guy, you know, writing our biopic would research us in like Scott Hess convertibles. So it would be a scene with Scott, Larry, Tim Burton, and John Ritter driving around together <laughs> in that red sunbird. Yeah. Talking about their next project. And it was like, no, because you got to just like combine stuff. <laughs> <laughs> How do you clear your head when you hit a creative block? Uh, just by staring at each other. Oh my really? God. Really? Longingly. Yeah. I mean, Scott Long and I, silences. Yeah. We work in the room together and we, you know, I mean, I will say the, the creative blocks happen little less because you have the other person that's mm. the benefit of having uh, a writing partner is that yeah. you can feed off each other and so there is that element of like this is let's just do it i think over the years too we've learned that in and almost like reading more let's just do it mm. like you know the creative block is just sort of sitting there all right you don't know how to write that scene write them driving to the scene write them parking outside of the scene write them going to the receptionist of the scene and eventually you're going to start getting to the scene yeah uh, with, with with the with the biopics and with all the uh, the crazy research, a lot of time. I mean, just now this thing we're working on now. Sometimes I'll just start flipping through the books, yeah, and just finding like, oh, well, this is kind of crazy. Hey, Larry, check this out. Mm -hmm. And you just it's just, it's just like a it's just like a weird piece of trivia, but it, it can just be a little bit of a spark. And then, what was the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Uh, it's a, a different answer to that question. Um, <laughs> You're gonna outsmart him. <laughs> no, no, no. As, uh, um, uh, because I, I really loved movies early on. I'm from Indiana. My dad worked at a factory. My mom was a waitress. But I just, I just was obsessed with movies from when I was nine years old. And I saw, I saw everything from that age. And so I have this kind of encyclopedic uh, thing about movies of the early '70s. And I just, uh, you know, I, uh, but when you first start watching movies, you kind of recognize the actor. And I think the movie that changed that and made me realize there were people behind the scenes of a movie. Uh, I saw a movie called The Conversation, mm. uh, Francis Coppola's movie that he does, well, between, high, bro? Uh, <laughs> he does between Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. And I remember as a kid, that was the first time I realized there was someone behind the curtain. Yeah. That there was like, wait a second, someone someone had made, was telling me this story. And mm -hmm. wow, this is different than, than just a normal thing. And so I think that was probably the movie that made me... Uh, you know, think about directing and writing and all that. It, it took me to the next level. And it probably was hitting me at the right age. I must have been like 13 or 12 at, yeah, that, yeah. at that point. It was hitting me right when I was like becoming a, a, a real person. Here, uh, here Chris, I'll, I'll give you, you an answer I've never given. I'm just, I'm just thinking about your question. I'm going to say uh, King Kong. Uh, because the original, the original 1933. Yeah. Yes. No, the Charles Grodenberg. Really, <laughs> yeah, you that. never that know. You never know. Yeah, Jessica Lange, Charles Groden, <laughs> Jeff Bridges, uh, John Gillerman. John Jessica Gillerman. Lange. Wow. See, we know our movies. Okay. Uh, you can pull out John Gillerman. You know? Yes. I'm pleasing nobody, <laughs> as movie? you would say. Who was that? Your buddy, Lorenzo Simple. Oh, that's right. Your Lorenzo pal. Simple or Sterling Sullivan? Ooh. Ooh. 1933 King Kong. I, I, I was interested in starting to make Super 8 movies. 
And when you're, you know, eight or nine years old, the easiest way to make movies is by yourself or with your mom helping you. And so I was making simple animation. And I, 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 don't, I don't have any talent for drawing. So I was doing simple cutout animation and simple clay animation. And then I got a book called The Making of King Kong, which talked about all the early animators. Mm-hmm. And it talked about the directors. And it talked about glass shots and how they would project Kong onto a screen. I'm sorry, how they, they would project Faye Ray onto a little screen and then have the animated King Kong puppet act in front of her and, and create the illusion that she was small right next to his hand. And, and on, on just a total techno freak nerd level, and I, you know, I was 10 years old. This was just so interesting to me. And so then I really got into animation. And, tr- and I, was, I was trying to do King Kong, Willis O'Brien kind of effects in my bedroom when I was 10 or 11. And I, I've never really thought about this. Uh, and, and, and I would just keep going back to that book, the making of King Kong, and like, well, how can I do this? How can I do this? And so I was really learning about the process then. Awesome. So I think, um, yeah, I think that pulled me in. And I looked it up. Never, never argue with Scott Alexander, <laughs> Lorenzo Semple Jr., who's amazing. I've done, I did a bunch of evenings. You were friends with him. Friends with him. A bunch of evenings at this American Cinematheque. I would have booked King Kong. That I booked Marriage of Young Stockbroker and Pretty Poison. <laughs> no one showed up. No one showed up. That's <laughs> awesome. I love those movies. Guys, thank you so much for uh, bringing me into your office here. We've been doing this, by the way, surrounded by uh, this daunting array of work. Uh, <laughs> and the Smothers Brothers. I've been staring at uh, Woody Harrelson on a crotch for the last... <laughs> <laughs> hour, which is awesome. But thank you so much for coming in. That's not uh, a poster. Woody's actually here. <laughs> he's actually literally over here lying <laughs> on a crotch. It's strange. A, Woody, God damn it, get off that crotch. <laughs> we told you to come later. <laughs> but anyway, thank you again and uh, love the film so much. Congratulations on it. It seems everyone that sees this is excited by it. So congrats on, yeah. on another thank great you very much. work. It's been fun. So again, the movie is Dolomite Is My Name. I think it's quintessential Scott and Larry, really, and not just because it's a biopic. If you follow these guys' work, I think you'll find they trade in strange true stories about people who made their own way on the fringe. Rudy Ray Moore fits perfectly in the tradition of guys like Ed Wood and Larry Flint, self-made men of confidence who ignored the status quo and followed their own compass. Not unlike Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, in fact. I think when you see the film, whatever your lot in life, you will find it to be quite inspirational. So check it out. Dolomite Is My Name is available to stream on Netflix right now. I ain't lying. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. Netflix.